And uh, turn in your Bibles or open your smartphone Bible app to the book of Genesis. I uh, shared with you last week that we were going to take a short break from our series in the book of Revelation. Uh, we've been walking through the book of Revelation. We finished the seven letters to the churches at the beginning of uh, chapters two and three, and we were going to take a small break and spend the next six weeks walking through a sermon series uh, called Dust and Glory, the Imago Day and what it means to be human. Imago Day is a Latin phrase for the image of God. What does it mean that humans are made in the image of God? And so we are going to spend the next six weeks kind of walking through what does this mean? What does it mean to be human? Well, I've been reading uh, lots of different books that I'll, I'll quote from uh, throughout this sermon series, but one of them is by an author named Kelly Capick uh, called You're Only Human. And in this book, he quotes from uh, two Old Testament uh, scholars, Stanley Horowitz and William uh, Willimon, uh, in their book, they're, they're talking about the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Uh, and, and he says this, Nothing is quite as ontologically revealing as our belly button. By noting that we are creatures, creations of mothers and fathers, the Decalogue tells us that we have life as a gift. We are begotten, not manufactured. Someone even changed our diapers, our first hint of what grace must be like. No wonder some of us despise our parents, for they are a visible, ever-present reminder that we were created, that the significance of our lives is not exclusively self-derived. He, uh, uh, Capic talks about this in the context of when he sends, uh, he's the, uh, he's a, the president of uh, Covenant College, our denomination's uh, college, and uh, he talks about it in the context of sending students home for winter break, and an assignment he gives them as soon as they get frustrated with their parents is to look at their belly button and to remember that they are creatures, to remember that they are creatures, that they are not entirely self-derived. Their meaning doesn't all come from themselves. Uh, one of the things that we'll look at throughout this sermon series is the reality that in our culture, we are bombarded with the message that what it means for us to be human is determined by us and us alone, that we are the ones to determine these things. The reality is, though, that we all have belly buttons, that we were all born, that we were all that we are all creatures made in the image of God. And so what we're going to do is see that the biblical story and how the Bible lays out what it means to be human is often at odds with what our world says about what it means to be human. And our task is to dis- determine what does the Bible say about this and then how does that affect all of our lives. Uh, there's a lot of ethical issues that come up when, it talks, when we talk about what it means to be human. Uh, all sorts of them. Actually, it feels like every uh, major, especially hot-button ethical issue in our culture right now is somehow related to what it means to be human. And so we're going to unpack and touch on some of them, but I want to let you know that uh, we're not going to unpack each of those ethical issues, certainly not fully in this sermon series, but also uh, not really hit a bunch of them until we get to the fifth uh, sermon in the series. Uh, because as I was working on this, as I was walking through some of these pieces, uh, I thought, man, I really want to hit this. This piece really fits this one ethical issue that we want to touch. But then I thought, but I've got to say this, and I've got to say this first, and I've got to say this first. And so we're going to move all of those pieces to the fifth sermon because I think so often, particularly as Christians, Whenever the world confronts us with an issue, we respond very flippantly and quickly with chapter and verse, or this, the Bible says this, or whatever, and without thinking about the complexity and the nuance of the biblical storyline. So what I want us to do is take a few weeks to unpack a biblical framework for the Imago Dei and what it means to be human. 
And then we'll get to, hey, there's a lot of really pressing issues that this affects. How do we talk about those things? How do we talk about those things in the way that the Bible talks about them? How do we understand the truth of God? How do we do so with compassion? All of those pieces. So we'll get to all of that. So I may touch on something throughout this series, but no, I'm not going to say fully what I'm going to say about that in an individual sermon. We're going to get to a spot in which we're going to unpack more of this, all right? That's preface number one. There's a couple of prefaces here. I promise. We'll get to a text. I promise. Uh, So uh, I want to let you know where we're going in this series, so that way you have an idea of how we're going to get there. Um, So uh, today, we're going to look at dust and glory created by God. What does it mean that we are created by God? That we have a belly button, right? What does it mean that we are created by God? Uh, next week, we'll look at what does it mean, what, what does the fall of man into sin mean for what it means for us to be in, uh, made in God's image? How does the fall affect us being made in God's image? Does it erase the image of God in us? Uh, how does it affect uh, how we would understand the, the brokenness of the world around us? How does it affect what we would understand to be uh, natural things that we experience that feel at odds with God's word? How do we unpack some of those things? So we'll look at what it means to be fallen, but still loved by God. The third week, we will look at what does it mean to be embodied? What does it mean to have, uh, to be created as an embodied person? We are body and soul joined together, intentionally so. We'll talk about this a little bit uh, this morning. And what does it mean for us to actually live as Christians fully understanding that God intended and designed and for our good gave us bodies, that we live an embodied life. Uh, The fourth sermon will be, why did God make humans? And we'll tackle questions of purpose. Why did God make humans? What purpose do we have? Uh, as individuals, as uh, uh, the church, as culture, what are those things that God has designed for our purposes? Uh, the fifth sermon will be the Imago Dei and what it means to be human, just, a, uh, 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 just like the series title. And this will be a synthesis of all that we're learning about the biblical framework of what it means to be human and addressing specifically the ethical issues that that touches on. And then finally, we'll have a final sermon transitioning us back to the book of Revelation with a sermon on the Imago Dei and the new heavens and new earth. What does it mean that we will have glorified bodies in the new heavens and new earth? And that'll transition us nicely back into the book of Revelation. Uh, At least in my head, that'll help transition us back nicely uh, to the book of Revelation. So today, dust and glory, what does it mean to be created by God? Okay, so I'm trying something new with the scripture on the screen also, so hopefully it works. Get ready. It's pretty fancy. Oh, nice. I got this thing, Hunter. I'm going to use it from here. All right. So we're going to start in the book of Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to jump around a little bit in the book of Genesis, but start with Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry on the ground. Then God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given you every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the sixth day. This is this sweeping picture in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis begins with this sweeping picture of God creating the universe, right? God speaking the universe into beginning. Genesis begins with, in the beginning, God. God is the one in existence before all time who steps in and creates the universe, creating the heavens and the earth. And At the pinnacle of God's creation is 
humans. The pinnacle of God's creation. This is very clear from the the sweep of this story and throughout all of uh, the biblical text. The reality is nothing else in all the universe is said to be created in the image and likeness of God himself. God has created glorious things. You can see glorious things. You can travel around the world and see amazing things. Beautiful sunsets. Glorious images of the universe through telescopes. The depths of the ocean seas, the Grand Canyon, all of these things are gorgeous and amazing. And they display God's power and yet they are not the pinnacle of creation. Actually, if you would think for a moment about the most difficult and annoying person in your life, that's the pinnacle of God's creation. (laughs) Hey, no one said your name, John. No one said your name. So you're good, man. Here's the thing. You, here, sitting here, you are the pinnacle of God's creation. At the very outset of this story and of this series in which we're walking through this, what it means to be made in the image of God, we need to reckon with the God of the universe decided to create human beings in his own image, and we are the very pinnacle of his creation. Now, the creation account goes on, chapter 2, uh, uh, there are really two accounts of creation. The first, this, uh, in chapter 1, is this sweeping, big picture account of creation. And chapter 2 zooms in on humans and begins to, to chart this new story of the generations of Adam and zooms in on what it means uh, that God created humans. And so we're going to look at a couple of spots in Genesis 2 as we move forward here. All right, Genesis 2, 7 through 9, and then 15 through 25. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life, and the tree of the light of the and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat this fruit, its fruit, you are sure to die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky and all the wild animals. But still there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last the man exclaimed, This is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. All right, so we get this picture of creation zooming in on what it means to be human, what it means that God created humans. And one of the things that we need to unpack here is what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Remember, Imago Dei simply means image of God. What does it it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? Because clearly throughout the rest of the Old Testament, right, God is invisible. It's one of the things that Israel is challenged by as they travel around all the time. People say, where is your God? We can show you our God. He's this statue in this temple. Where is your God? He's invisible. So what does it mean to make humans in his image? Well, we're not really given in this text a specific definition of what the image of God is 
as much as we're given a description of what it means to be made in God's image. What does it mean to be made in God's image? Right? The triune God says, let us make humans in our image to be like us. So foundational to this text, we see that we are created by God in his image. And that we are created from the dust of the earth. We are dust and we are glory. This is the reality. It's not really uh, so much attention or a balance like you're a little bit dust and a little bit glory. It's just the way it is. You are both dust and glory. You are a creature. You are a creature like all the other creatures created on the same day. Right? Created on the same day as the other creatures. You are a creature. And God declares, even after declaring all of the good things that He has done, He declares, it is not good for man to be alone. And so, He makes a whole bunch of other animals, a whole bunch of other creatures, and one is not found suitable uh, to be uh, uh, His helper, and so God makes Eve. The point of this is that you are not your own. You are created. And not just Adam and Eve, right? The Bible doesn't just affirm that Adam and Eve were created and therefore the rest of us are something else, right? No, this is affirmed throughout the rest of the scriptures. Psalm 119.73, you made me, you created me, now give me the sense to follow your commands. This is the psalmist speaking to the Lord. God, you made me. Isaiah 45, verse 12, this is the Lord speaking. I am the one who made made the earth and created people to live on it. With my hands, I stretched out the heavens. All the stars are at my command. This is crazy, right? The Lord says, all the stars are at my command, and also I made all these people. I created them. Job 10, verses 8 through 11. You formed me with your hands. You made me, yet now you completely destroy me. Remember that you made me from dust. Will you turn me back to dust so soon? You guided my conception and formed me in the womb. You clothed me with skin and flesh, and you knit my bones and sinews together. You gave me life and showed me your unfailing love. My life was preserved by your care. Psalm 139.15 You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. All of these affirm that you were also created by God. That you were created by God. Yes, God used means of your parents to create you, and yet also God created you. That's what the psalmist affirms. The psalmist affirms that God, through the means of your parents, created you. And the psalmist and Job, all of them are affirming that God watched over that process, that God was involved in that process, and you, like Adam and Eve, are both dust and glory. That you are made from the stuff of the earth, and you are gloriously stamped with the divine image. And that's what's so unique about this. You are a creature just like every other creature, and yet you're also not like any other creature. You see, when, Adam was, when, when God declared that it was not good for Adam to be alone, he couldn't find a creature that was suitable for him because Adam was not like the other creatures because you and Adam are image bearers. You have glory. You are like God. You are both like the earth and like creatures and you are like God. You are made with a divine stamp. This is true, this image of God, right, is true in all people, right? The psalmist is affirming this, and the biblical storyline would affirm this. All people from womb to tomb, we are made in God's image. We bear the divine stamp. This has implications, obviously, for all sorts of ethical issues uh, that we will uh, continue to talk about, both for those who are in wombs and those who have wombs uh, and those who are nearing death. Compassion, care, concern, grace, and love. And not simply talking about abortion, but also about addiction and violence, gun violence, immigration, care for the poor, care for the elderly, care for those with physical and mental health challenges, 
Regardless of race, gender, income, sexual orientation, you are a human being, meaning you are made in God's image. You are made in God's image. You bear the image of God in this world in a unique way. There is no one like you. There is no other person that reflects something of God's character in the way that you do. That's what the biblical storyline affirms. So what does it mean then to be created by God in his image? Now, theologians have spilled a lot of ink over that question. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Is it this certain aspect? Is it this certain aspect? What is, it? is it our intellect? Is it our ability to reason? Is it our ability to ask the question, what does it mean to be made human? Uh, right? Like, is it those things? Is it our work? Is it our vocation? Is it the way in which we create like God creates? There's lots of different ways. But because we're not going to be here for four hours, I'm going to choose just four, okay? Just four uh, to talk about these things. Could say a lot of things, but we're going to say just four. All right, so to be made in the image of God means to be relationally oriented. Relationally oriented. Now, we are uh, oriented towards communion and relationship, both vertically with God and horizontally with one another and with creation. We are made to be in relationship with God. God made us in his image so that he could be in relationship with us. We see this as God plants Adam and Eve in the garden and walks among them. God comes to be among them. God has created them to be his people. This is the refrain all throughout the scriptures, right? The key promise in every covenant, every relationship that God establishes with his people is, I will be your God and you will be my people. God desires relationship with people. It's not just that God has designed humans and created humans to reflect his glory and go out there and be this image of him, but stay distant. No, we are to reflect his glory and also to come close to him, to be in relationship with him. Not because God has need, but because we reflect who he is. Right? God, we see in the very beginning, it says, let us make man in our image. Let us make human beings in our image. Right? Now, there's lots of debate about what the let us means. Is it just God speaking in sort of a royal we way? Uh, or is this a reference to the Trinity? Well, it doesn't really matter because we know from the rest of Scripture, God is a Trinity. Right? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are together in perfect harmony for all eternity. God did not create humans because he was bored and needed a friend. God was delighted in himself within the person of the Trinity, but it is the nature of a fountain to overflow. God, in the fountain of his glory and love for one another, overflowed into creation. So the fact that we are created for relationship is because we are in the image of God, right? That's the reality. It's not that God created us so that he could have a relationship. It's he created us, therefore we are created to have relationship because of who he is and what he is like. So we are to have vertical relationship with God. This is how he made us. And he has unique relationship with humans. Now think about this. What did the psalmist say? Or what did God say to the, uh, in Isaiah? I command all the stars. God commands all the stars. He has limitless power and can see and know everything that's happening in the universe. And yet, he chooses to have a relationship with you. He chooses to have a relationship with humans. Finite creatures. And we were finite creatures before the fall. And now we're fallen finite creatures. And yet, he still chooses to have relationship with us. Because he's created us to know him. We are to have relationship with creation horizontally, right? God places Adam in a garden and says, tend it. We are to care for this planet that God has given us. The little spot that we have in the universe to care for, we ought to care for it because we are to have real relationship with created order, with creation around us. We are not to just exploit creation for our own benefit. We are to care for it. We are to cultivate it. We'll talk about this a little bit more. But we are to be in relationship and rooted in the earth. And we are to have relationship with each other. 
other image bearers. And that's not just in marriage, right? This creation of uh, Eve for Adam is not like, okay, the, the only perfect union is the perfect union of marriage. That's not true because Jesus is the perfect God-man and was not married. So he cannot, uh, we cannot define marriage as the only ultimate good for human relationship if Jesus, who is perfectly satisfied with the Father, wasn't married, right? Like our theology of relationship must include Jesus. Just put that out there. Always your theology of anything must include Jesus. Uh, Otherwise, it's a non-Christian theology, right? And so we have to account for Jesus in this, meaning... Uh, marriage is a glorious thing, and we're going to talk about that as we walk through this uh, series. But as we'll see in the New Covenant, the church is called the Bride of Christ. The foundational human relationship, which is the context for bearing children, is both foundational reality and a picture of the greater reality of Christ in the church. This picture of a greater reality, meaning that even in this text we can see the point that God is making in creating Eve for Adam is to say we are not made to be alone. None of us are made to be alone. We are made to be in relationship with one another. We are made to know and be known. This is why solitary confinement is often considered torture of the highest degree. Because we as humans will not function if we are alone. It will severely damage us and we will be very broken. This is why this pandemic has been so hard for so many people. And why we ought to understand and have compassion and reach out and care for one another. Because we know, as God said, it is not good for us to be alone. We've got to care for one another in that. So, we are relationally oriented as humans. All right, number two, we are intentionally embodied. Now, we're going to have a whole sermon on what this means to be intentionally embodied, but so we'll get to it more, but we need to talk about that at the outset of what it means to be created in the image of God. When God said, I'm going to create human beings in my image, he said, I'm going to make bodies. Human beings are embodied creatures. We have souls and spirits, and yet we are in a body. Now, this is super important because there are lots of philosophies throughout the history of the world and presently today that are a lot more subtle and difficult to see that speak of the body, uh, speak of us being embodied as that being a bad thing. Right? So there's lots of different things about that that speak of the, the, the reality of being soul and body. The body is bad, the soul is good. Or we own, the body is all there is and there's nothing else, and therefore we'll just talk about the body. But the reality of the biblical picture is that we are soul and body put together. And this is incredibly important and affects what we think of the new heavens and new earth, and that's why we're going to talk about that at some point, but the reality is we are soul and body together. Uh, Greg Allison in his book Embodied says, human beings as divine image bearers are embodied beings by divine design. You're dusty. And that's good. Intentional from God. Not just Adam, not just this ideal person that was created. You. God intentionally designed You with your body and said, it is good. You are dusty and that's good. Again, uh, to quote Kelly Capick in You're Only Human, the countless needs of all human bodies are intentional design elements to the way we were made. Not to be independent loners, but connected to each other in a web of interdependence and relationships. Not ghostly disembodied souls, but dust-derived, spirit-breathed, Creatures. Being human has always been an embodied state, and that has always been a good, not a bad thing. The whole point of Capic's book here is to say that the limits that God has given us are good. You're not a limitless being, and you never will be. And that's important and intentional. 
He's talking about before the fall. All of this we're talking about before the fall. God made you with a body that needs sleep before the fall. That was intentional. God made you with a body that needs to eat before the fall. That was intentional. God made you with a body that has needs that you can't satisfy on your own. That was intentional. Because you're made to be relationally oriented. See how these things go together? You have needs, and you will never be able to fulfill those needs all by yourself. He made it that way on purpose so that you will reach out to one another. You are intentionally embodied. You have a body, and that is designed for your good. Now, we're going to talk a lot about how the fall affects that. Because our bodies don't always function the way they're supposed to, do they? Right? (laughs) Doesn't always work. We suffer from chronic pain, from insomnia, from all sorts of problems that we are frustrated by because this world is broken. And so we're going to talk about how that affects it. But we cannot say in the midst of it, because my body is broken, therefore my body is bad. No, God has made you embodied and you will remain embodied for all eternity. Right? That's the picture of the new heavens and new earth. It's not us floating around on clouds like angels, but being in these bodies, glorified. It's really important. We are intentionally embodied. Okay, third, we are beautifully diverse. The reality of this beginning section is that God says, I am creating them male and female. Right? He says, I'm going to make human beings in my image So he created them in his image and likeness. Male and female, he created them. Male and female is the beginning of a biblical way in which God is going to unpack creation of unity and diversity. Unity and diversity together. There is unity of Adam and Eve, right? The two become one flesh. And yet there's also diversity. Men and women are different. Men and women are the most alike things in the universe and the most different things in the universe, right? We are made in God's image and we are united together and yet we are also diverse. And this plays out all throughout the scriptures in a whole host of other ways, not just the diversity of male and female, but the diversity of uh, race, ethnicity, culture, language, uh, physical traits, all of these things. This is intentional from the very beginning. God is saying, I'm making a beautiful mosaic of people and they are not all the same. And the new heavens and new earth is not saying, let's get back to only unity and no diversity. No, no, it's still unity and diversity together. This beautiful mosaic glorified. The diversity that we see in, and of, uh, in the human race is Intentional. It's by God's design. It is good. It is glorious. Now, certainly, the the idea of male and female being created as male and female, there's lots of conversation around this when it comes to biological sex versus gender and more complicated conversations around gender norms, gender dysphoria, transgenderism, and things like that. We are going to talk about that. We're going to touch on those things at some point, but currently what we see here is that in the original creation, in the ideal creation, uh, male and female distinction is important and created by God for a purpose. That's, that's really all we can say at this point. And we can affirm that the glory of God and the divine stamp is not possible to fully display without male and female. This is really important to, def- to affirm because throughout church history, the church has not always done this very well in affirming that without men and women, the glory of God is not fully on display. That's very clear from this text, right? God created them, male and female, in his image. So the image of God is not fully on display without male and female. It also affirms the way in which, uh, we, as I said, diversity is a good thing, and moving forward, lots more diversity comes. So, the reality is, what we need to know is that there are folks who have used the Bible to justify all sorts of oppression, colonialism, and slavery, and in the past, they have used the Bible to say the image of God 
is just, uh, there, there might be multiple images of God, or we're going to affirm the image of God in some people, but not in others, all of those things, that's not okay, and not seen in this text. Also, you can't say someone is made in the image of God, but also they're made to be subordinate and a slave. Like vocationally, like that uh, race of people is made that way because that's, that's not what this text is. Actually, it says that they're going to reign over the earth, not be subordinate. If you're made in the image of God, you're made to reign over the earth. So we cannot make that kind of thing. We are, in fact, to be kings and queens ruling and reigning with God, not in the place of a slave. So the image of God is, a, is present in all people regardless of where they're from, who they are, what race they are, any of those things. The image of God is present. It needs to be affirmed. So we are beautifully diverse. Okay, fourth, we are vocationally called. Vocation meaning our, our work, our calling. We are called to do something. We are called to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, right? Part of what it means to be made in God's image is the Imago Dei in action, to work, to reflect what God does. He works seven, or six days and then he rests the seventh day. There's a rhythm to God's working in creation that we are to reflect as his people. We are to multiply. We are to fill the earth. We are to rule and reign as kings and queens. And we are to cultivate and care for the earth. These are, that's what ruling and reigning over the earth means. It means to cultivate and care. We'll talk about that in a moment. But we are to, first and foremost, it says to multiply and fill the earth. We, as creatures participate in furthering creation. Think about that just for a moment. God creates people made in his image through people. That's insane. That's like, oh, you know, I'm just going to go create a star. You know. No, 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 not a star. More glorious than a star. More glorious than a star going to create them. Participate with God in creating more image bearers who will live for eternity. That's crazy. And yet it's the calling for humanity, for the collective for humanity to multiply. Ecclesiastes, are you... Clicked off. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're good. Okay. Ecclesiastes 11.5 says, Just as you cannot understand the path of the wind or the mystery of a tiny baby growing in the mother's womb, so you cannot understand the activity of God who does all things. Right? Isn't that the truth? The mystery of people coming into existence. It's just mysterious and glorious. And we should recognize that. We are vocationally called as humanity, right? Speaking of the collective, right? Individually, we might have different collective call or individual vocational callings when it comes to multiplying and bearing children, right? We're not all called to bear children. That's not the calling on every individual person. And you are not lesser than by not participating in that. Certainly not. That's not true. Again, Jesus doesn't fit Jesus. Well, we got to throw that out then, right? So it's not, but it's the collective call of the units of humanity is to multiply and fill the earth. This is glorious. And not just the creation of babies. That's glorious and crazy. But also all other things. God puts computers. Yeah, absolutely. God puts Adam in a garden and says, cultivate this place. You are placed here in Muncie, and God says, cultivate this place. Act like me. Create. Cultivate. Cars, technology, education, words, art, novels, houses, gardens, all of these things. That's the divine image at work. Laundry. Meals. Financial systems, cultivating the human body through medical practice, on and on and on. All of that is the divine stamp at work every single day. Reflecting what it's like to be God. 
cultivating and caring. Taking this little thing, this little plot that I am given, and making it better. That's the divine image at work. That's what we're called to do. Every day you engage in things that showcase that you are made in God's image. Every day you have an opportunity to reflect God's glory by doing things in a way that reflect that you are made in God's image. And every day you're at work in this. Every single day, every single one of you. Children, you are at work in this every single day as you imagine, as you play, as you grow, as you learn, as you cultivate, as you care, as you clean your room, my kids. As you do any of these things, you are, cult- you are showing what it means to be made in God's image. A caretaker, a cultivator, creating. Creating culture, beauty, all of these things. And every day, every person you encounter showcases that they are made in God's image. Every single person you encounter is more glorious than a star. Every single one. So again, think about that person that you thought about earlier. Popped right in your head already, right? Most annoying, difficult person in your life. They are more glorious than a star. They display the divine image every day in what they do. Every day. All of these things are true for us as humans, but how do we know if God thinks that they're very, very important? Like, are they very important or are they very, very important? How do we know? Well, certainly, we know God recorded them in in the Bible. He doesn't record everything in the Word, so if He puts it down, it's important. But I think there's something more that we can know about how important God sees these things. comes back to what I said earlier. Our theology, if it doesn't include Jesus, we got problems. Jesus declares for us that this is very, very important. Colossians 1 Okay, there we go. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. This one isn't working. You want to just go through? For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Jesus is the perfect image. The complete image. Not just a picture, but a picture and the thing itself. He is fully God and fully man. We're going to talk a lot more about this, but we... Uh, in our modern church era, think about the incarnation really around Christmas, right? God taking on flesh. That's really maybe the only time we think about it. But throughout church history, this is one of the most foundational and counterintuitive and insane doctrines there is. God took on flesh. The second person of the Trinity, the Son, took on human flesh, was born in this world. If you want to know whether God cares that you have a body, look to Jesus. Because God said your body is so important, I will become a body to save you and your body. I will take on flesh myself. I will come and I will live with all of the creaturely finite limits. The God of the universe having his diaper changed. The God of the universe stubbing his toe, stepping on a Lego, the worst. Well, they had something like Legos. I'm sure there were some blocks that someone was putting together and somebody stepped on it, right? This affirms so many things about us. God taking on flesh and not just taking on flesh 
at one time to then suffer and die and then go back to glory and take back on his pre-incarnate state. No, Jesus will forever be embodied. Forever. Jesus took on a body. Now his body is glorified now as a first fruits of what ours will be like. But he will forever be in that body. Forever. He existed before time. He is the reason the universe exists. He's, when God spoke it into creation, right? He did so through the Son, through the Word. He holds all of creation together right now. Your lungs bring in air because Jesus makes it so. And He will forever be in a body just like you. That is glorious. It affirms that we are vocationally called. God sent Jesus into the world on a mission. And actually, not just a glorious saving mission. He spent the first 30 years of his life doing boring things. He was a carpenter. He grew up in obscurity. He grew up. Kids, your life now growing up is important to God. He cares about that. Why? Because Jesus went through it too. His voice cracked at one point. It affirms that we are beautifully diverse. It's not just that Jesus took on a body. He took on a first century Jewish man, man's body in the Middle East. He said, that is where I'm going to go. Beautifully diverse. Showcasing the glorious diversity of humanity. He is intentionally embodied. Jesus took on flesh and will keep it forever. Glorified and embodied. God didn't make a mistake when He made you the way He made you. The fall has certainly jacked with things. We know that. But embodiment isn't the thing the fall has jacked with. Glory will have no more pain, but still a body. No more brokenness. No more suffering, but still embodied. And finally, we are, it affirms that we are relationally oriented. God comes to be with us, uniting the vertical and the horizontal ways in which we are oriented to be in relationship. God comes to dwell with us. We'll get to the fall and how that affects the reason for which Jesus comes to die on the cross in our place, right? He is uniting heaven and earth. He is reconciling all things through the blood of the cross. And the blood of the cross is necessary because of the fall. And yet, the motivation for that is not because uh, of our sinfulness, but because of God's love. Because of God's love for us. We... You are made in God's image. Nothing erases that. And yet your rebellion is a real problem because God is glorious. He commands the stars. And so you can have relationship with the God of the universe through faith in Jesus Christ. Through trusting in this one who came to die in your place, to come in your place, to live amongst us, to prove that God cares about you and to dwell with us. This is possible for us because we are made in God's image and because Jesus came to bring us close to God so we can trust in Him. We are created by God to reflect His glory and through Jesus we can. That's what it means for us to be dust and glory created in the image of God. Now the reality about that is this has implications for so many things. It has implications for how we love God, how we're in relationship with God, and how we love and are in relationship with our neighbors. And throughout this whole series, we are going to learn how does us being made in the image of God relate to us loving God more fully and loving our neighbor more radically. Uh, I've thought about this a little bit. I talked with the staff a little bit this week. I might end every sermon in this series with a quote from C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. The same quote every time because it's just so profound. But the reality is if we are to really grapple with what it means that every person we encounter is made in the image of God, it will change everything about how we relate to everyone around us. 
how we relate to God and everyone around us. So Lewis says this, this uh, I, I've uh, put together a few of the places he says this in this one paragraph because it's pretty long. Uh, but he says this, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are, all, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, the Lord's table, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Every day, your neighbor is the closest you're going to get to glory apart from what we're going to do here in a few minutes. The closest you're going to get is your neighbor. Whether they know Jesus or not, they reflect the image of God. They're the closest you're going to get to seeing God. That's glorious. And should profoundly affect what it is for us to live in this world. Loving God and loving neighbor. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now confessing that we are, along with the author of Ecclesiastes, we are blown away by the mystery of how the wind blows, how a baby grows in the womb, and how you work, Lord. We can't know it. We can't understand it. We can't unpack it all. We just simply want to worship in light of it. So God, would you help us now not just focus on what it means for us to have a brain and think about all these deep things, but also, Lord, we are an embodied person. Would you help us now to just be together and to worship with all of our, us? To worship with our mind, with our body, with our soul, with our voice. To just be before you in awe before you, God. And would you, by your Spirit, transform us as we worship you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.